0: Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey everybody. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Terry DeBose. I'd like to take a minute before starting this episode to thank everybody for listening. It's been very fun to be able to start seeing where people are listening to the podcast from and that how many people are joining us for these episodes. We would like to encourage you if you have any ideas um, about the podcast, or if you want any other questions for our guests that we didn't get to, to please email those to international sonography podcast at Gmail.com. Otherwise, we're going to jump back into this episode, part two, with Terry DeBose. Well, let's talk verbiage for a minute because I know you're a big guy on verbiage. How has the title of our occupation evolved over the years from ultrasound tech to sonographer? What was the importance of using this term correctly, and why was its distinction so critically important for the field?
1: It's still controversial but as far as the evolution we can blame Joan Baker because in England radiologic technologists are called radiographers and so when this came up here she said well why don't we call them sonographers and uh, so everybody uh, adopted it and this was about the time the ARDMS was going through changes and the SDMS was changing from whatever it was the Assets or whatever they were called, and sonography came coined. But ultrasound has a deep history because it goes way back. But ultrasound, if you think about it, is simply a noun uh, that means high frequency acoustic frequencies. And to use it as an adjective, it would have to be ultrasonic or an adverb, ultrasonic. If you're talking about an image, it would be an ultrasonic image. To say ultrasound image is, it's it's not grammatically correct. Ultrasonic is the adjective if you're going to modify image. Just like sonographic is an adjective or an adverb
0: mm-hmm.
1: or transducer, a sonographic transducer. I think it's important because of linguistics. And we we think, humans think in words, and words have meanings, and what we think is what we become, and I think it will make a huge difference. The The problem is uh, there's strong opposition from the RVTs, the registered vascular technologists. They're saying that if, if we change it from technologists, that it's going to hurt them in salaries, and I don't believe that. Um, and I think the sooner we get everybody on the same page as far as sonography goes and proper grammar as far as sonographic and sonograms and, and sonographers, uh, the more unified it'll all become and the public will understand what's going on and there'll be less confusion for the public and everything because sonography is pretty well accepted as a term now. In New York Times, I've seen it all over. yeah. And, and I just, I think it's very important for the, the continuation of the profession to, uh, and grow. And if we're ever going to get an a advanced practice, it's going to be a sonographer. It's not going to be a technician.
0: Yeah.
1: It was the main objection to ultrasound because it's so easy for it to roll out ultrasound technician. And I just detest that. And I other did. people use ultrasound that don't do sonography. We've got di- dental hygienists cleaning teeth. We've got chiropractors and physical therapists delivering deep heat to joints and muscles. We've got jewelers cleaning watches and rings and and that sort of thing. And they're all using ultrasound, but they're not practicing sonography. And they're certainly not doing diagnostic sonography. Sure. And if we could get that unified, I think it would be a, a great advancement. But I know that there are strong opposition. We had a chance almost 20 years ago to change that. When you Bonnie, mean
0: the, the vascular technologist
1: part yeah mm-hmm. so when they had their national meeting in in uh, New Orleans this is long before Katrina uh, in the early 90s and they were prepared to vote it it they they just couldn't quite pull the vote off it, it was very close it was split almost down the middle but they didn't change it and it that was I, I'm afraid that may have been the last chance for that and I know that Will be criticized for pointing this out by RVTs because they they cherish that that term. But technologists in in the Department of Labor and and the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, are defined as someone who follows a protocol without much independent judgment, and a professional uses independent judgment, and that's the, one of the biggest difference. And sonographers do, and RVTs do.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. As
1: long as they are got that tied, then the legislators in Washington and other places, the bureaucrats, aren't going to understand that they're not technologists following just routine protocol, that they're actually using independent judgment in each of these cases to decide, does this tell the picture or not?
0: it's hard to understand why they think that changing it from technologist to sonographer would actually decrease their pay because you think it would put them into that professional uh, bracket, you know, in the it's,
1: it's so deeply ingrained now. And there's so many of them. Uh, I don't know what it would take to change it. Now we, we missed the chance 20 years ago, I think.
0: Yeah. I know Joan was talking about, it's a lot easier to get something done when there's smaller groups of people because as it yeah. gets larger you have to convince more people.
1: That's right. I think it would be better for the profession in the long run, and it would be much easier to move to advanced practice and master's degrees, I think, if we had a single unified approach to the linguistics of our profession.
0: It is considered a success by many measures for the occupation to have made it in the Bureau of Labor and Statistics Handbook as a separate occupation from that of radiology. What are the specific advantages that you think it has had for the field that this took place?
1: Yeah, it's the, the OOH, the yeah. um, Occupation Outlook Handbook. is published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And um, the main difference it makes is that when you go to look for a sonographer, uh, you can find it online now. Back when Joan appointed me to the chair of that committee that that came out of,
0: hmm
1: she said let's find out what's the difference in a professional and a technologist and how do we going to deal with all these terms and what about a professional how do we and so i went again to my sister the librarian my research person that i always turn to and she said well go to the ooh the Occupational outlook handbook and see what you can find there because that usually defines things for career counselors and everybody well, every time I went to the OOH and typed in sonography, I got radiologic technology. And it went over. It went on and I couldn't, I, there was no way I could type in a, a CERT and come up with sonographer. Yeah. And so I scrolled down to the very bottom of the, the website and down there, there was some contact information. And so I emailed one of the people down there who immediately emailed me back and says, well, lo and behold, we just happen to be revising that section of the OOH right now. Could you help me in defining these terms? And so he sent me what he had and I went through and edited it and and changed a bunch of stuff and uh, kind of put it into a Word document And But before I sent it back to him, I sent it to Joan Baker and uh, Steve McLaughlin, who was president after Joan at that time, and said, we need to edit this and get it back to Washington as soon as we can. And so they got together, and they, for the most part, agreed with what I'd done. They did some other stuff, and we came up with a concise description of a diagnostic sonographer And we sent it back to them, and they made a few changes, and they published it that way. So now, whenever a career counselor is looking in the Department of Labor's literature to find something about sonography, we actually come up. It doesn't take you to radiologic technology anymore.
0: What what was that year that they officially changed it?
1: About 2000, probably.
0: Okay, that had to be... I took an aptitude test in 2001, and my... (laughs) Number one came up, I should be an auto mechanic, which was not (laughs) going (laughs) to, but number two, um, you know, I guess associated by the engineering aspect was sonography and I had no idea what it was. So that's how I kind of went and looked it up. But I remember typing it into Google, um, you know, uh, sonographer, and of course it tried to take me to stenographer for a long
1: time. Yes. That's been a great complaint.
0: Yeah. But then I was able to see it in the BLS and that's where I, it took me to, so so I, that just seems like just such good timing that you contacted them, that they were revising it, so that you guys got a chance to put your hands on it. All
1: coincidence. Yeah, it just just happened that That's way. Great. And as far as the year, it was before Steve McLaughlin died and it was during his presidency. That we were working with Washington. Now I don't know when they actually published it. It may have been after he was president.
0: I think it was two thousand three, maybe, where they finally published it. In two thousand one, was like the first when he That's
1: gets- that's about right. It was it was after Steve was president. Maybe after he may have still been president. I don't know, mm-hmm. but he was very involved. He and Joan Baker were very involved with helping to edit all of that that stuff. It, it, it I certainly didn't do it alone. There was a bunch of us involved. And fortunately, I think we did a pretty good job of
0: it. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate it, sure, being downstream from all that. So what are your thoughts on the current career ladder options for today's sonographer?
1: Well, if you're interested in ob I would go for a master's in genetics counseling because you're going to be able to fill two jobs. It'll make you golden. Beyond that, we need a master's degree. It's it's going to take a while to get there Mm
0: -hmm. now now advanced cardiac is now around but the advanced practice has still not been able to to be available what are your thoughts on that
1: well advanced practice is simply a a, a title that anybody could uh, write a protocol and a curriculum for call it a master's degree and and Put the hours you need into it. it be a longer curriculum. Yeah. But it will it will have to be much broader. And go into oncology and, and breast exams. All of that will have to be included for our true advanced practice. Otherwise, we're just going to call it degree inflation. Yeah. We, we've got to add quite a bit to it to make it, it a
0: true... Like it's kind of the chicken and the egg scenario, how it was when you were... Um, when your dean, you know, was questioning, like, are we going to have enough, you know, turned out to do this? And you kind of convinced him that there's going to have to be somebody to convince people that if we create it, they'll come. And then eventually there will be that need, but we need to start somewhere.
1: The root of all of this goes back to LBJ. I mentioned him a while ago because he was when it sent me to Vietnam. (laughs) But if he hadn't been saddled with the international diplomacy and war, he would have been a great domestic president because his uh, war on poverty and the great society, he was throwing money at starting colleges. In fact, it was in that early 70s period when Austin Community College was started, and all these new community colleges were looking for something to teach, and sonography was happening. And so we ended up with huge numbers of junior colleges giving either certificates or associates degrees in sonography. And the sonographers then got out, they got more and more experience. They got very, very good. And now everybody says, well, why do you need a more advanced degree to do that? These, these associates degrees are doing great
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and they are. Yeah. But, uh, and, and this is something that you probably need to talk to. Uh, Joan Baker probably knows about it, and Diane Karamira knows about it. Uh, back in the early days, before I was involved in the board of the ARDMS, the ARDMS asked some kind of a career uh, researcher to look at the tasks that sonographers do and the judgment that they Mm -hmm. deciding is this image right or is that image right and and they came back and they says really your people even though they only have associate's degrees or certificates there weren't many bachelor's degrees in those days they said they're really performing at the level of master's degree because they're using their independent judgment they're making diagnoses and that was the that was for it was but we never got beyond that point and they're still performing at that level our diagnostic sonographers
0: yeah absolutely and as subspecialties i feel like branch out and people are specializing more it's even more so
1: yeah yeah it's getting real fragmented it's gonna be hard to pull it all together i believe me.
0: Well, then this kind of leads into this question. As many of the first-generation sonographers are quickly approaching retirement, what are some of the greatest achievements by this group, you included, and and Joan Baker um, and many others? But uh, what baton are they passing on to these generations who are following in their footsteps? And what remains to be accomplished within the field?
1: Mm. Well, what they're passing on is a mature profession. And what needs to be done is to bring the educational level up to where it's commensurate to the actual tasks that sonographers do. Diagnostic sonographers are doing diagnosis. And if they don't see it, the physician will never see it. I don't know how we're going to get across that. It's a huge gap. And medicine is slow to change. It's very conservative. Academia is slow to change. It's very conservative. We're never going to convince all these associate degree junior colleges to give their programs up because we're saying, "Well, you're not educating them enough. They need a master's degree to do this." Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, "Well, we've got hundreds of graduates that are doing it," and they're right. Yeah. But I, I think our profession is has one of the most disjointed task responsibility to a degree uh, of any profession I know of. I don't know how we're gonna get over it or around it or through it.
0: That's why I hope that people can see what you guys have done through these interviews, through learning the history of sonography, is really to look at what you guys have done and how we continue to push forward and how we continue to convince people that there's a higher level to attain to and a reason for correct verbiage and that that all matters.
1: Yeah. The linguistics is one of the first things we need to straighten out. And that's going to mean bringing RVT along with us. And there's, it's, it's going to be a fight.
0: If somebody was to ask about the legacy that Terry Debose left on the field as a sonographer, educator, mentor, in your own words, what would you hope that they would realize that you contributed to the field?
1: Well, I started two uh, accredited programs, gave Up accredited programs, one in Texas and one in Arkansas. I'm very proud of the cranial volume, even though it never took off. Nobody really uh, paid much attention to it. There's politics involved in that, plus W.B. Saunders disappeared, the textbook disappeared, but I'm very pleased with the research I did for for the fetal fetal brain, uh, the heart rate, human anatomy uh, throughout, uh, and... um, starting two accredited programs. I guess that's mainly it. And all the people I trained over, over those years and educated. We educate them more than we train them nowadays. And I've, I've been on the board for the SDMS, of course, the executive committee. I've been on the board for the AIUM and the executive committee for a while and uh, the JRC-DMS for the KHAP accrediting programs and I learned a lot from that, just going to see other programs and how they're designed. And I developed a piece of software and programmed it, I designed it and programmed it. I called it Basic Baby because it was uh, programmed in the basic language. And, it, um, and I, I still think it's one of the best uh, pieces of software. Unfortunately, I wasn't much of a salesperson. I was more interested in academics and teaching and... And that sort of thing, and probably uh, partied too much at some of the conferences instead of talking to the engineers.
0: Well, blame that on Lorinda. She was too busy pulling you out on the dance floor. <laughs>
1: yeah, hey, well, I always enjoyed dancing. And um,
0: well, but, explain basic baby. Was it a program for physicians, patients, educators? What are we doing? Well, we,
1: we use it uh, on every case for ten years. Here, we've got over ten thousand cases and we had a laptop. Fortunately, I worked with a group of uh, physicians who uh, were very supportive and every time we added a machine, we would I would buy a laptop and put it on it and we would enter all the fetal measurements into it. It, it could hold 12 fetal measurements, uh, including the three-dimensional cranial volume, embryonic heart rate. Uh, the long bones, the abdominal circumference, and that sort of thing. And then it would work, it would automatically displace statistics and a uh, bell curve of the distribution of the parameters so you can see the proportionality of the parameters against each other uh, over a timeline. And it's kind of hard to explain that in words. It's easier with pictures to see it. But... um, I sold several hundred copies in the 80s, uh, but none of the manufacturers ever picked up on it. I was kind of disappointed by that, but that's probably my fault for not being a salesman. At least that's what Mimi Berman told me once.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, and it could be that they were actually trying to have their own engineers figure out how to put those things on the machine. That's
1: a possibility. Yeah. Nobody ever came up with that bell curve of the distribution of all the parameters. So you could see if, if the abdomen was too, getting too large or too small, or, and, you, and it just gave you a visual graphic of that bell curve that showed uh, all the parameters within the bell curve so you could see uh, exactly how it was going.
0: Sure. And nowadays we have like on the machine and um, in, in our reporting packages, like the Hadlock uh, calculation for estimated fetal weight um, and the Williams. What, was it similar to that in that it gave you percentiles for where each measurement was hitting compared to gestational age?
1: Yes. And it, uh, just speaking of which, Hadlock, uh, he was speaking at a, I can't remember where he was. I went to so many meetings, but he was at the podium. And I was in the audience, and he was talking about uh, fetal head measurements. This was way back when the, he first came up with the head circumference. And he said uh, he, he called me. He, he called me out from the podium. He says, "Terry, and I don't know why we're not using your three-dimensional head. It is more accurate." But he says, "I think we're just lazy." And yeah. it 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 never went anywhere. Nobody picked up on it. But it is. Uh, it's about as much more accurate than the head circumference as the BPD is more accurate than the um,
0: abdomen or femur? Or
1: no, no, the other head measurement. The, the uh, OFD? Yeah, the OFD. The the, mm-hmm. long skull.
0: the, middle, the frontal diameter, yeah.
1: Because uh, it was the the third measurement, the vertical axis of the skull. Sure. It, it, it accounted for that, whereas the BPD, if you get compression this way,
0: sure, the
1: top, the sutures here allow the top to go up more than sure. the front to back.
0: So in the three-dimensional, you took almost like a sagittal view of the cranium and were able to get the vertical axis? How were you able to do that? Now we got a coronal. Yes.
1: And then we got the head circumference. Sure. And we got those two measurements from it and the coronal, which incidentally is a perfect circle in a normally shaped head. Yes. And um, as any compression this way raises the top of the head. And then, as after about 30 weeks, when the fetus starts getting real crowded and it pushes against either the mother's pubic bone or the wall yeah. of the uterus, mm-hmm. it, presses the vertical axis and this expands.
0: No, was that an explanation for why babies that are breech were more, more dolichocephalic and babies exactly. that are cephalic were brachy? Exactly. Okay, well that's cool so in the coronal plane when you did that vertical measurement what was your posterior um, caliper kind of where was that put where was the inferior caliper placed? Obviously the superior caliper was at the top of the skull.
1: Well I constructed a triangle. Sure, uh, between the top of the head and a line, an artificial uh, line, yes, that was tangential to the bottom of the two circles around the hippocampal gyra. Okay, on each side. Sure. And the midline, of course, was in the middle. And I measured the from the base of the triangle, which was under the hippocampus to the top of the head. And that okay. gave the vertical axis. It was actually the height of the triangle. Sure. And that's all in fetal sonography. That That's what led to fetal sonography. And the reason W.B. Saunders let me publish fetal sonography. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, they got taken over by Elsevier right yeah. after we published. Yeah. They already had uh, Hagen answered. So... Uh, my book never got republished, but hagen answer did offer me two chapters, and all my research is in is in those two chapters. So all of that, um, I've I've had great opportunity. That's great. I, I was just at the right place at the right time, and had kind of sorted myself out after Vietnam, to where I wasn't totally nuts, drugged yeah. out.
0: Yeah, well, I can I can appreciate how that must have been. I was reading the collaborate I keep an eye on there every time I uh, get a chance and I noticed that you were speaking about a doctor who a physician had just passed away um, yes a great kind of legacy for you know towards sonography so I was wondering if you just wanted to talk a minute about him
1: Lynn Dycon was a a radiologist sonologist in Fayetteville Arkansas and when I started program in Little Rock we had uh, students up in the Northwest because we were using TV lectures throughout Arkansas. They had a good system Mm -hmm. and he lectured for us from Fayetteville and he was always very supportive of sonographers and treated them with respect and he was a great friend and uh, Lucy and I met he and and, uh, Glinda in at the AIUM meeting in San, in San Diego one year and had a wonderful dinner with him, And we had always corresponded. And then suddenly a few months ago, I didn't hear any more from him and he was apparently very ill. And then right before, well, when I posted that on Collaborate was the day I got the message that he had passed. Yeah. But he, he, he was young, he was in his 60s, and uh, a great supporter of sonographers. He took his OBGYN registry so that he could serve on the OBGYN EDTF, which I was chair of. Oh, okay. And I talked him into it. I said, well, you, we really would like for you to have your OBGYN. I know we have some physicians on there that don't have registries, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to encourage him to try to join the board or the EDTF, the Exam Development Task Force, Unless he had the OB Mm Gen under his belt, so he took it, and I got him appointed, and uh, we worked together for four or five years on the ARDMs OB Gen. Very pleased. We did some of the first work moving toward three-dimensional imaging and uh, Mm -hmm. how to test that on on a written test.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: he was involved in that, and I'm very proud of the work we did there.
0: Well, that's great. We appreciate all that. And I just appreciate so much that there was that there are physicians out there that are so supportive of sonographers, and I know it makes a huge difference. So, yeah. okay, well, I have kind of one last personal question. How would you meet Lucy?
1: Uh, at a Christmas party at her um, cousin's office. Okay. First cousin. And this was a law office, and it was in the 70s. And uh, I spent some time in jail protesting the war. Uh And this group of lawyers that uh, her cousin was a part of were the ones that always got me out. And no charges were ever brought. I don't have any felonies or anything like that because they were always Johnny on the spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was arrested three times, once with 118 people in Killeen. And, and they always got me out. And so I went to a Christmas party there and a good friend of ours, a mutual friend, introduced us. Basically, we never looked back, except I don't have much memory for names and numbers. And I couldn't quite figure it out. The friend that introduced us said, uh, I, I said, well, you can put us back in touch with each other. Because I was sure I wasn't going to memorize this. I didn't have anything written down. Okay. She said, oh, yeah, just call me.
0: <laughs>
1: what she didn't tell me was that the Monday morning she was flying to San Francisco for a month. So every time I, and this was before, answer machines. Okay. And so every time I called, I, I didn't get an answer. <laughs> Finally, after two weeks, Lucy called me up and said, do you remember me? <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, yes, yes. I've been trying to get your number from uh, Chris. But yeah that uh, she doesn't ever answer her phone. And she said, oh, well, she's in California. And so we made a date to go to dinner and it's history now.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> great. Terry, we'd like to thank you so much for your time and the dedication to the occupation of sonography. Please come back and join us for episode five when we interview Chelsea Meyer-Wright, who is not only a practicing clinical sonographer, but also the creator of the Facebook page Sonographers Do It in the Dark. We'll get to sit down with her and see what inspired her to create the page, what it means to run a social media site this day and age for the occupation, and what she sees in store for the future of our profession. See you then.